Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to this class on Daniel in the A New Thing series for the Thames Valley and Watford Churches of Christ. We're focusing on the first six chapters only, and you might want to review your understanding of the book by watching the, uh, the Bible Project video that I have linked in the show notes, because we're not going to be going into the detail today, looking more at the threads and themes of the first six chapters. Let's have a dive in straight away and see what we may discover today and keep in mind as we go through what are the new things you're seeing here. One of the things I think we see in chapter one is the fact that youth is no barrier to being useful to God to do a new thing. It says about Daniel and his friends in chapter one verse four, they were young men without physical defect and they were handsome. Key thing though, they were young. And young means young. It means they were well well under 30. Let's put it that way. We can't be sure of the exact age. But they were people who would otherwise be considered to be not that particularly uh, useful at that point, perhaps. And yet, they have such conviction that they stand up to the palace master in chapter 1, verse 8. And Daniel resolves to not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. He asks the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. He eats only vegetables and his friends as well. And of course, at the end of that, they, God vindicates this because they are seen to be healthier than those who had not had the same diet. We see that God is recognized here. It says in chapter 1, verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. It was God who did it. One of the new things in our churches is that the next generation are coming through to positions and roles of responsibility, and it is vitally important that the older members encourage that, and it's vitally important that the, the young people in the church understand you are as capable as having tremendous impact for God as anybody else. We see this in Daniel. Now, what about chapter 2? In chapter 2, we see an emphasis that God's wisdom is superior. The king has a dream and he asks his the normal people to interpret his dreams to do so. And they say what the king is asking is too difficult. No one can reveal it except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. In other words, we don't have that connection with God or the gods. Then Daniel comes along and he's brought in. and He says, well, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no diviner can show to the king the mystery that the king is asking. But and his, this is the key thing. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel knows he has a connection with that God, that God is with him. God speaks to him. God reveals things to him. God's wisdom is superior and God's wisdom is available to those who will, well, effectively listen to God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Again, he's still a young man, but he understands that God is present. And there is, as a result, a recognition of this great God. Because the king says to Daniel in chapter 2, verse 47, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, uh, Lord of kings rather, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now Daniel gets a lot of um, recognition here, but ultimately it is God that it is understood has given Daniel this power, seeing a thread already. Chapter three. In chapter three, we have the situation with the burning furnace. And I think in here, in this chapter, we see the significance of never compromising. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought before the king and they are charged with, uh, uh, with disobedience and they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, they say to him, if our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from blazing, the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him 
deliver us. But if not, in other words, if he doesn't choose to do so, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. We will not compromise whether God saves us from this specific situation or not. And what we learn from this is that faith-inspired resistance is the victory, not the specific outcome. Now, the outcome is good. They are not harmed by the fire. They are rescued. But the point I think we're meant to see is that it is about, it's their faith that's to be admired here. And they, they will have faith and trust in God no matter what the outcome is. This is very important for us as we attempt new things for God. In our own lives, in our local groups, we try new things. The issue is acting in faith, not whether what we hope and plan for or pray for actually happens. Because God may have another plan, but we may be learning things, things about him whilst we attempt these new things for him. Ultimately, there is also in this chapter a recognition of God's power and sovereignty. Because the king then says, after they are rescued, of course, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Faith is vindicated, and God is glorified. What about chapter 4? When we get on to chapter 4, we have Nebuchadnezzar having his horrific dream no one can interpret it except Daniel. And again, we see that God is being emphasized as sovereign here. Um, uh, Daniel tells the king, you'll be driven away from human society. Your dwelling will be with the wild animals. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen. You shall be bathed with the dew of heaven. Seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. And Daniel pleased with him to humble himself. May my counsel be acceptable to you, verse 27. Atone for your sins, your, your iniquity uh, with mercy to the oppressed, so that your prosperity may be prolonged. However, he does not heed this. And it says in verse 33, he was driven away from human society. He ate grass like oxen, and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails became like birds' claws. Very sad. God will not be mocked. However, even the kind of pride that Nebuchadnezzar had can be redeemed. Because in chapter 4, verse 34, when that period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. He humbled himself. And again, there is a recognition of God being God here. Because also, verse 34, it says, I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored the one who lives forever. For his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. God is at work again and again. Chapter 5, two more chapters to go. In chapter 5, we find a situation where another king has arisen, and he has a rather scary experience of seeing the handwriting on the wall. And Daniel is brought in to help. But this is much, much later from the earlier chapters we've been looking at. He was a young man in chapter 1 and early on. Now he's an old man. Many years have passed. And what we see here is that Daniel's convictions have been maintained from his youth to his old age. The king is told that there's a man in your kingdom endowed with the spirit of the holy gods. Daniel 5 verse 11. In the days of your father, 
when he was much younger, he was found to have enlightenment, understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods. He's brought in. And how does he react? He reacts by being a prophet, telling the truth no matter the consequences. He says, you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You have, been, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. Verse 22 and 23. Verse 26, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Verse 26 to 28. That king does not humble himself ultimately like Nebuchadnezzar. He ultimately, I suppose, recognizes God as being sovereign, but not willingly, unwillingly, because that very night he was killed. He was assassinated. God, God did what he said he was going to do. Darius takes over when he's 62 years old. Finally, chapter 6. In chapter 6, we have the lion's den, that incredible story about Daniel and the lion's den. And we find that he is accused of not paying any attention to the king, verses 13 and following. Uh, he's still saying his prayers three times a day. When the king hears this charge, he's very distressed. He's determined to save Daniel. He knows Daniel's a good guy. And until the sun went down, he made every effort to rescue him. But the conspirators came to the king because they want to do away with Daniel. And they said to him, now, uh, to know, O king, there is, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no, nothing that the king establishes can be changed. Verses 13 to 15. The king is in a bind. The king is trapped. Daniel's ultimately trapped in the lion's den. But who's really trapped? I mean, the king's outside the lion's den, but actually he's more trapped than Daniel is because Daniel has God. He's rescued and he says in verse 22, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no wrong. He's just prayed to, uh, to God, of course. That's all he's been doing. He has integrity. He has trust in God. And ultimately, God is recognized as being God. In chapter 6, verse 26 to 27, that king says, I make a decree in all my royal dominion. People should tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion has no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, for he has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. What are some of the things we learn about God through all of this? I think we learn that uh, God gives things to his servants when they need those things. He inspires Daniel to test the regime in chapter 1. He gives Daniel wisdom in chapters 1, 4, and 5. He gives Daniel boldness in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And he strengthens Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3. God gives his servants the wisdom, the courage, the strength that they need at the time when they need it. And God is for his servants. He blesses them. He improves their appearances if, as if that was possible in chapter 1. He, he uh, effectively, through the work he does through them, they end up getting promoted in chapters 2, 3, 5, and 6. And of course, he rescues them in chapters 2 and 3 and 6. God is so active here in his people, through his people. And indeed, he is active against his opponents. In chapters 3, 5, and 6, he stuns his opponents with his power and he humbles them over and over again in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. And what does God through this do for himself? He causes Gentiles to honor his chosen people in chapters 1, 2, 3, 5, and 6. 
and he causes Gentiles to even worship him in chapters 2, 3, 4, and 6. God is at work. God is honored. God is glorified. God is seen as sovereign. God becomes more prominent to the people in this Gentile secular world through Daniel and his friends. They are willing to be in a new place trying new things with his strength and then God gets the glory and we still read about it and find it inspiring even today. So what might we learn from all this for ourselves? Well, I think the first thing is that new things like going to a foreign land to learn a foreign language and surrounded by foreign people eating foreign food and not being around the temple and the priests and the prophets back in Israel. New things like this, doing new things for God, are fear-inducing and uncomfortable, even dangerous and risky. That's what we see in the first few chapters of Daniel. New things put us in a place where we have the opportunity to experience the power of God in new and more profound ways. I doubt Daniel and his friends would have chosen the situation they find themselves in, but having been in it and experienced the power of God, would they go back to Jerusalem? They, they found things to be incredibly inspiring in this dangerous new thing territory. New things experienced like these people here give us the opportunity to grow in our relationship with God. Can you imagine how much more deep and profound Daniel's relationship was with God at the end of these experiences than before? And new things reveal new gifts in us and our community. The four of them, the three friends and Daniel, they experienced new things together. They found new strength, new courage that they didn't know they had, and new wisdom for that matter. So to wrap up, God doing new things in his people almost always results in those people experiencing fear. You can't do new things effectively for God without experiencing some kind of fear. Secondly, when God's people deliberately choose faith in the midst of fear, they experience God at work. Thirdly, when God is at work in these people experiencing a new thing, he becomes visible to the world and receives glory. And finally, when God has an impact on this world and gets the glory he deserves, the memory of such events passes down from one generation to another. Now and again, I sit around with old friends of mine and we reminisce about things from 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 35 years ago. We said, do you remember when God did this and how God did that? It's so inspiring. And we hope to pass on that to the next generation. But also the next generation and the generation after that will have their own new things to try. That will be fear-inducing, but when combined with faith, will give them experiences of God that change things for them and the world around them, that then they will pass those stories on to generations yet unborn. Isn't that so inspiring? That's what we see right here with Daniel and his companions. So some final questions for you to stimulate discussion uh, in your local groups. Firstly, who do you relate to most in these chapters and why? Is it Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or even Darius? Who do you relate to and why? Secondly, what do you think the main lesson is that God wants you to take from Daniel chapters 1 to 6? The main lesson God has in mind for you. Thirdly, how do the experiences of these chapters relate to any new thing in your life? Anything in your life at work, at home, with family, anything going on? How do the experiences of these chapters relate to anything new in your life? And finally, how do the experiences that people had in these chapters relate to anything new in your faith community? Not just for you personally, but in your local group. Love to know what you think, so drop me a line. You can send an email to what the email you see on the screen or in the show notes. And next time we'll be looking at Esther 
Until then, though, I do hope and pray that what you've heard and seen in the life of Daniel and his friends will inspire you to combine fear with faith and then trust that God will reveal his sovereignty and power that will make a difference to you and to all the people around you, especially those who don't yet share in your faith. Till the next time, take care and God bless. Thank you.